It started with a baptism, an ordinary enough thing. The baptizer himself may have been a little unusual, wild-eyed, bug-eating John who lives in the wilderness and is like, you know, getting in touch with nature, bro. When John baptized Jesus, some insist a voice came from the clouds, but others said it was nonsense, that it was just thunder. Everyone could see it was a cloudy day. A plain dove lit upon Jesus at that moment, but you'll realize that doves and pigeons are the same creature. Could something as mundane as a pigeon be the image of this moment? The second person of the Trinity was bathed by a dirty hippie's hands in our dirtier river waters, a pigeon flying about. We call it an epiphany. For whom? Maybe John or Jesus, the crowds, maybe you. Then last week there was a wedding predicated by that very common miracle of falling in love. And then there was another miracle. Jesus' first order of business was that there would be no business but mirth. He made 150 gallons of wine, just an incredible amount, not just enough to wind the party down respectably, but a way of saying that it had just begun. Why? We wanted wide-sweeping humanitarian aid for the desperately ill or the end of disease. We also clamored for judgment against our enemies, and he didn't smite one of them. Nor did he come, it seems, to expose the sinfulness, sinfulness of our own hearts. No. He came for our gladness. An epiphany. For Mary, maybe. For the servants. Maybe you. And now, today, Jesus goes to church, like us, every week, giving the readings, saying the prayers, all his life long. He gets up today to read the scroll of Isaiah before sitting down to preach about it. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he says. And that's the end of the sermon. You may think that the lectionary is just cutting this off here and that he goes on. That's the end of the sermon. The next sentence of the gospel is, reports that the people were amazed at his words. I don't know if you're particularly amazed. As sermons go, I feel like nine words isn't much to go on there. If I had a habit of giving nine-word sermons, I'd be uh, amazed if I kept my job. <laughs> really? Jesus is telling them in his startling brevity that this is the kind of Messiah he was going to be. The Hebrew Scriptures gave some options for would-be Messiahs. A conquering king to reunify the nation, or an exalted priest to bring the former glory into the temple the military man, maybe, who could lead the uprising against the Roman oppressor. But Jesus chose Isaiah and says, this is going to look like hope for the poor and the oppressed. God's favor proclaimed. He himself will be the bruised reed, the suffering servant. Difficult words to hear. For all of us who believe worldly ways of power 
are God's ways too. An epiphany. I love that we have an entire season of the church calendar dedicated to this experience called an epiphany. A revelation without warning, this brief glimpse of understanding, that feeling when something searched for clicks suddenly into place. It's a funny thing. Of all the feelings and experiences in life, to have a chunk of every year dedicated to this particular peculiar sensation of new insight. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure I've had an epiphany this season. I should maybe try harder to have one. But you should not actually try harder to have one. It's not like learning. An epiphany's very nature means that it can't be willed or controlled. It's a, it's a fleeting, finicky thing. And when it happens, you can't explain it very easily to others. I remember being very young and having been taught the concepts of multiplication, but not really understanding them. My cousin Dwight and I were playing in the haymow of my grandparents' old barn and talking uh, in, in our little child language about my frustration with with multiplication. Um, And at that moment, us together, I had this sudden rush of insight. I will remember it forever. (laughs) As weird as it is, the way I stopped with, with wide eyes, the sunlight brilliant gold in the clouds of dust as we were kicking it up as though the God of math himself had shined his rays upon me through the crumbling roof of this old barn. For whatever reason, from that moment on, I understood multiplication. You've had this happen, right? With, with better things than multiplication tables, Yeah. Like after studying a foreign language forever and suddenly realizing that you're not translating anymore, you're reading it. Or that moment for the musicians when, when sheet music became an extension of yourself. Now the funny characteristic about these epiphanies is that they don't actually come out of nowhere. It's an insight into something ordinary that you've been paying deep attention to for some time. You read French eventually because you have dedicated yourself to French. You learn multiplication because you've already been working at math for years. But there's this ordinariness, a mundanity at the core of these epiphanies. So too with the stories we're telling of Jesus. The wedding, right, last week, typical to the point of a stereotype that some detail will be dropped, some party disaster will, do, will occur. This common thing as a sort of wild insight into God's character. An ordinary sermon Jesus gives today, I mean, first being amazing because it's brief, am I right? But Really, no one knows what to do with the type of Messiah that Jesus is describing. We still don't. Even the baptism, right? You all know around here that we believe in baptism once, once and for all, that God's work is fully complete in that one immersion, no need to do it again because nothing can undo the waters of your baptism, period. 
like that some scholars think that Jesus might have been baptized loads of times. Ritual bathing was very common, particularly among the Essenes, uh, who were right in the thick of things back then in Jesus' time. Imagine, if you will, Jesus going for that weekly cleanse, and then suddenly an insight, a revelation. I don't know if that's how it happens, but I like it. You know, we come here every week bringing the works of our lives. We take some, you know, let's admit it, pretty unspectacular bread and wine, and we say these holy words and proclaim it God's own body and blood. But even something that preposterous and fantastic can become ordinary when you do it all the time. You know that that's okay, right? You've memorized the words and sometimes have found your mind wandering while you've said them. That's the point. That the word be so near you as to find its way into your habits and patterns. Look, I had an epiphany once. I was at a woman's bedside giving last rites, those ordinary words we say to greet the pitiless and unyielding ordinariness of death. She was a lifelong Episcopalian, and her life had this blessed combination of being both long and good. She'd been responsive for a few days at this time, hadn't eaten or drank in all of that time, and I'd later find out it was just a few hours until the end. But as her family and I stood there, holding hands, we reached the part where we say the Lord's Prayer. And I watched this woman's lips begin to move, to mouth the forms of the words, joining us in a silent and miraculous recitation of the most common thing we say around here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. An epiphany. They're hard to explain, the sudden gleam of the miraculous off the scuffed surface of the ordinary, you know, you never know when it will come to you. 